spiritual opportunities, they don't last forever. And the world that rejected Christ back then, 2,000 years ago, well, it still rejects him today, as we'll find out. Some 2,000 years ago, Jesus had an appointment with Jerusalem. It was called Palm Sunday. And even then, there was mixed reaction. Welcome. This is Graceful Truth with Pastor Steve Converse from Grace Bible Church in Redwood City. Today, we're in Zechariah chapter 9, as well as Luke chapter 19, taking a look at this Palm Sunday account, an appointment in Jerusalem. Please join us as we take a look at the spiritual opportunities that don't last forever, but are there today, if you'll but look and listen. With today's broadcast of Graceful Truth, here's Pastor Steve. So the chronology of the week adds to that. Secondly, there's a mosaic requirement that the sacrificial lamb for Passover was to be selected on the 10th day of the first month. That's very important. And what they would do is they would select the lamb, but then they would keep it as a pet in the household. And then they would sacrifice the pet on the 14th day. Sounds kind of hard to believe, those of you who love animals. So they would take the lamb into their home. The the lamb would, you know, be a, a pet in the home. And then the lamb would be killed. It would be slaughtered. It would be sacrificed. Why? Because that lamb would become beloved by the family. So it meant something. It wasn't just some lamb off the hill. It had lived with the family. And in that year, by the way, the year that Jesus was crucified in A.D. 30, Monday was the day when they selected the lamb. History tells us. So if Jesus entered the day triumphantly on Monday, the city triumphantly on Monday, he was received into the hearts, the picture is he was received into the hearts of the Jewish people as much as a family receives a sacrificial lamb, only later, several days later, to be sacrificed on Friday. And so the week would go something like this. On Saturday, he was anointed. The next day, Sunday, there's a great crowd that comes to Bethany to see him. On Monday is the triumphal entry. He comes into the city. He goes to the temple. At night, he returns to Bethany because nobody's at the temple when he gets there. On Tuesday, he comes from Bethany back into Jerusalem. He curses the fig tree on the way, cleanses the temple when he gets there because they're there. The religious leaders get even more angry with him, and they want to destroy him. At the end of that Tuesday, he goes back once again to Bethany, and he stays there with his friends. Because remember, Jerusalem is filled up. There's no room there. On Wednesday, he comes back into Jerusalem, and he has another day-long controversy with the religious leaders. It's then when we have the Olivet Discourse. It's then when you have the sermon of his second coming, recorded in Matthew 24, Mark 13, and Luke 21. He predicts that he's going to be crucified in two days at the Passover, which is exactly what happened. That's when Judas plans his betrayal. All that happens on Wednesday. And then on Thursday, what happens? He meets with his disciples. He eats the Passover meal in the upper room. He gives the the great final discourse to his disciples we read about. And then he goes into the Garden of Gethsemane. He prays to the Father. Friday comes. That's when he's arrested. He's tried. He's crucified in the afternoon. On Saturday, he's in the grave. On Sunday, 
He's risen from the dead. All this is in the mind of Christ as he's going through this. He knows all this is going to happen. And the people surrounding Christ as he rides into Jerusalem with all these weighty things on his mind, all the people can think about is that he's coming to bring us glory. Hosanna, he's coming. But see, there couldn't be any glory until there was a cross. The cross is a necessary part of glory. There couldn't be a kingdom until there was a sacrifice for sin. The people didn't understand that, but that's the truth. Now this morning, as we focus on this, a lot of times we, we read about the triumphal entry, and sometimes we don't get down to the details. Did you ever ask why did Jesus ride into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey? Why were people waving palm branches? Why were they crying out, Hosanna? What's all that mean? Uh, usually, Palm Sunday of the week, of the Holy Week, is the most misunderstood day of the week. Now, I think that you would agree with me that today most people reject truth in our world. They don't want to hear it. Well, in this triumphal entry, when Christ rode into Jerusalem, it was truth that rode into Jerusalem on a donkey's back. It was truth himself. And although the crowds cheered the truth, beneath the surface there was a conflict that was going on. There was a rage that was beginning. The majority did not want the truth that day. Nor have they wanted the truth on any day since then. We live in a world today that nobody wants to hear the truth. If you claim to have the truth on anything, you're pious, you're whatever. Well, this Monday began as all the other days, an early sunrise, the sound of the merchants opening their little shops. Bethany wasn't a large town or even a a town at all. It's more like a village, a little simple cluster of homes gathered together. Here and there, the farmers made ready to go to the fields. Planting season was upon them. Mothers busied themselves getting their children up and dressed, breakfast. But in one home, things were a little different. In one home, things were different because Jesus was there. It was the home of Mary and Martha, these two sisters who lived together along with their brother Lazarus. And and Jesus, in the time of his ministry, had visited them many times. They were very close friends. Their home was really a special place of refuge for him. But I can only imagine this time his visit was a little off. It was a little different. There was something different about Jesus. This time he had come for a funeral, but it turned into a celebration. He had raised Lazarus from the dead Hundreds of people had seen him do it, and by now thousands more heard the news. So all this is leading up to this day. It was clear that Jesus was not staying here much longer. They didn't understand how this was going to happen. They just thought something was different. He had that look about him, kind of like a a look where a man is on a mission. No one else knew what was going to happen. Even the disciples, even though he tried to tell them several times, they didn't get it. They didn't know what was going to happen when he rode into Jerusalem. Now, a couple things here, a couple facts. One is that the story of the triumphal entry is repeated in detail in all four Gospels. So it's a major part of the ministry of Christ, the life of Christ. It's, It's important to understand that because... There's something crucial that's about to happen here. 
It's not just a, you know, a little event. The other fact that you read in this story that impresses us is that Jesus is in complete control of everything that's about to happen. He's in complete control. Unlike other events in his life, he's not reacting to anyone or anything else. No one expects him to do what he's about to do. No one. They have no clue. There's no sick people. There's no Pharisees to confront. There's no storms to still. There's no dead men to raise. There's no puzzling questions that need to be answered. What Jesus does, those are all reactions to what people pressed upon Jesus. But here, Jesus does, he does of his own accord. The story here begins with a donkey. (laughs) They go to the local village and they take the donkey from the owner and it all works out just the way Jesus described it. When you read when you heard Matthew, or Andrew read Matthew this morning, you realize that the disciples actually brought back two donkeys, his mother and a young colt. Um, and Jesus rides into Jerusalem on the younger colt with the mother probably walking alongside. Matthew also ta- tells us by riding a donkey into Jerusalem, Jesus was fulfilling an ancient prophecy in Zechariah 9.9. It says this, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Bring your king. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation. And is he humbled and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the fowl of a donkey? This was 575 years before this happened. God foretold it. He predicted it through Zechariah. And so those words tell us two specific facts about the Messiah. First of all, he will come as a gentle king riding on a donkey. It was a humble coming. He wasn't on a white stallion with a sword ready to overthrow Rome. But secondly, it tells us that he will come as a righteous king bringing salvation to his people. So this procession begins on a donkey. I mean, it was... It seems very unlikely for a king to come riding into town on a donkey. That's just not the way a king is supposed to come in. But it's not very unlikely, unlike from what Christ, the way Christ was born. He was born in a very humble circumstances. I mean, this was a very unlikely way for Christ to present himself to the nation of Israel. I'm going to ride in on a donkey. I mean, if Scripture had not predicted this, if it it wouldn't have been in Zechariah, no one would ever have said, hey, let's put him on a donkey. (laughs) That sounds like a great idea. You you couldn't think of such a thing. And, you know, it it really gives us an indication. That's why the Romans sat by. And they said, look at this silly guy. He thinks he's a king. And he's riding in on a donkey? I mean, who would do that? He's no threat. They mocked him. While tens of thousands of people flocked to Jesus, they thought the whole thing was a joke. So I didn't do anything about it at first. No self-respecting king would be caught dead on a donkey. I mean, you'd ride in on a war horse with a sword or something and make a big impact. Here you have this pauper king riding on a borrowed donkey. His saddle, he didn't even have a saddle. He had to lay down cloaks of cloth on the, the animal. And yet all these crazy people waving palm branches around. You know, he didn't look like much of a king that day. He really didn't. 
But that was the whole point. That's the point of this whole illustration. He's a king, but you know what? He's not like any earthly king at all. He's the king of kings, the Lord of lords. The triumphal entry was really an acted parable. It was a story to be told. It sent a clear message for the the, uh, nation of Israel. This is what I am. I am your king, but I am not the king that you are expecting. As Jesus began this three-mile journey from Bethany to Jerusalem, the people along the road began to do something no one else could have predicted. What'd they do? As Jesus passed by, they waved palm fronds. I grew up in the Catholic Church, and we would, on Palm Sunday, we'd get a palm. You know, what does that mean? Why do we do that? In the Old Testament, the Jews were told to wave palm fronds as part of the feast of what? Tabernacles. 200 years before Christ, during the Maccabean Maccabean, uh, rebellion, when the Jews temporarily regained control of the temple from the Syrians, they celebrated how? By waving palm fronds. 30 years after the death of Christ, during the rebellion that led up to the sacking of Jerusalem in AD 30, or AD 70, excuse me, the Jews minted coins. And you know what was on the coin? The image of a palm branch on one side. Taking this all together, we may say that the time of Christ, in the time of Christ, palm branches represented joy. They represented celebration. They were a symbol of national liberation to the Jews. And so when they were waving these palm branches before Jesus, it was similar to giving him, you know, what we call today a a, a ticker tape parade. It'd be like having a big military parade and honoring all the vets that come back from the wars. When you have a parade, you see a lot of American flags. Well, here, what was representative of them was these palm branches. So the people were holding these up. They were waving them. And they were basically giving the message, this is the man, this is the day, this is the time. It was the welcome given to kings and to conquerors. And so really what they were saying was, right on, King Jesus, no, nobody's going to stand in your way. Look at all these people you got behind you. It's Monday morning, four days before Passover. All these people swelled the streets. Everyone who was ever, anyone would be in, in Jerusalem for the Passover during that time. Everyone knew that there was some animosity, I think, between Jesus and the temple leaders. They'd had several confrontations. This wasn't a secret. Maybe they began to think, I wonder if Jesus is going to go to Jerusalem for the Passover. That's kind of risky. Why would he take that chance? Would he maybe just not go, take a safe, safe route, stay, stay away altogether? What, what's the, the issue here? Well, you know, there's a lot of political anger and ferment that's going on in Israel during this time. There were three main political parties. You had the Pharisees. They patiently endured the Roman rule. You had the zealots who, who didn't patiently endure anything. <laughs> they, they hated the Romans. They were like terrorists themselves. And then you had the Sadducees. And what they did is they ran the whole temple complex. And they cooperated with the Romans. And you stop and you think, well, you had the Romans themselves. You had two key rulers here, Pontius Pilate and, and Herod Antipas. And so the stage is set. Everything is in place perfectly. And into this unstable situation, who comes? Riding on a donkey. 
Jesus. As Jesus leaves Bethany for Bethphage and the Mount of Olives, hundreds of people are running alongside of him. The crowd is growing. And if you read John's account, you realize there's another large crowd gathering in Jerusalem. And having heard that Jesus is on his way, they actually leave the city and they begin to approach the Mount of Olives where the, the two great crowds meet. And there's this huge group of singing and shouting, laughing, dancing, chanting. They're, hey, their Messiah is on the way. He's going to overthrow Rome. Inside the city, you have the chief priests and the scribes. They're looking at this situation and realizing, wow, we got, we got a, something on our hands here. We got to deal with this. It's the public display of support for Jesus. That's the last thing they wanted. They wanted people to mock him. He's on a donkey. But that wasn't happening. The people were beginning to rally behind Christ. It appeared to these religious leaders probably that the whole world had flipped over to Jesus' side somehow. And their shock turns to dismay and then to anger as the reports keep pouring in. There's more people. There's more people. What are we going to do? And the minutes turn to hours on that Monday while two streams of human emotion just converge. On the one hand, there's the rising excitement of the followers of Christ near, as he nears the eastern gate. On the other hand, there's a mounting opposition as the leaders decide that Jesus will not leave that city alive. So you have shouts of people growing louder by the mo- moment as they approach the city. All four accounts tell us that they shouted. Look at what they shouted. First of all, they shouted, Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna. And the second thing they shouted was, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna is the Hebrew word meaning save now. That's literally what it means. Every observant Jew immediately recognized the second statement as a quotation of Psalm 118. That's one of the the best known messianic psalms. And by shouting these words, the people were in effect identifying Jesus as their promised Messiah. The people believed that the Messiah had come. And you know what? They were right. (laughs) They were right. It's overlooked sometimes that Jesus gladly accepted the praise of the people on this Monday. Because most of his ministry, he didn't do that. Matter of fact, even when he worked a miracle, sometimes he'd say, don't tell anybody. (laughs) See, he wanted people to see him as more than just a mere miracle worker. But not today. The time for silence was long past. If he once discouraged publicity, he now counts silence inconceivable. The time for truth had come. And when the Pharisees heard the crowds praising him, they urged him to rebuke your disciples. And he said, you know what? If I tell them to be quiet, what's he say? Even the rocks themselves will break forth in praise to me. What a statement. Verse 41, it says, when he drew near the city, he wept over it saying, Would you that even you had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes, for the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone upon another because you did not know the time of your visitation. What's he doing there? He's really... As he comes over that 
that southern shoulder of the Mount of Olives, you come to a, a crest. And when you reach the crest, the whole city of, of Jerusalem, I remember seeing this when we were over there, suddenly appears before your eyes. You see the whole city. I mean, it's interesting. He breaks, he breaks down. He begins to weep. And he's not weeping because, oh, man, I'm going to die. No, he's weeping not for himself. He's weeping for the, the, the city that was about to reject him, for the people that were about to reject him. He saw the, beyond the, the, the cheering crowd that surrounded him. And he clearly saw the mob that was going to crucify him. He knew on that Monday that Good Friday was only a couple days away. He saw into history, even into the future, when the Roman army would sack Jerusalem once again in A.D. 70. Really prophesied that right there. He knew the nation would soon turn away from him. He also saw through the the misty future to the day when the Romans would destroy the city stone by stone, killing men, women, children by the thousands. See, God's son had come and they, they crucified him. They crucified him. He knew everything about him. He knew the crowds were fickle. He knew the leaders were plotting against him. He knew the cheers would soon turn to jeers. He knew on that Monday what would happen that Friday. He knew the cross lay directly in his path. He knew all those things, and yet he went anyway. He went because he loved us. He cared for us. He wanted to provide a way of salvation for us. King Jesus rode on that donkey into that city that day because he had an appointment in Jerusalem. I mean, you couldn't have made it any plainer. Tried to explain to his disciples several times. They didn't understand. But the nation had a a clear choice to make. And so did the rulers. The Romans did nothing to interfere. The priests, they stood by and, and, and watched it all happen. Every man had a choice to make that day. Every man in Jerusalem made a choice. For better or worse, the die was cast. There was mixed reactions once Christ was in the city. Wild confusion reigns. The king has come. What will the people do? Well, we see in the story that the disciples praise him openly. The children praise him innocently. The crowds cheer him, but they don't understand him. The city's curious but they're not committed. And that leaves the religious leaders, the group of the scribes and the Pharisees, the elders of, of Israel, the rulers of the Sanhedrin. What will they say? How will they respond? The people have spoken, but will their rulers follow suit? And there's three words that sum up the official reaction to Jesus on that Monday. Fright, frustration, and anger. Fright, frustration, and anger. Fright because they do not know what Jesus is up to. What's he doing? Frustration because so many people cheer him as he rides into the city. How are they doing this? He's on a donkey for goodness sake. And then anger because now they see him even more as an enemy of their own interests. And really an enemy who must be eliminated. The time is up. The luxury of idle discussion is past. The time for decision has come. See, very soon the nation of Israel must render its verdict concerning Jesus Christ. Think about it. The evidence is in. The jury has been instructed. The verdict must soon be returned. Philosopher Soren Kierkegaard said this, Jesus Christ is the object of faith 
One either believes in him or is offended by him. Either you believe in him or you're offended by him. There's only two choices to be made here. You either believe in Christ or you are offended by Christ. The truth about Jesus is a two-edged sword. It cuts both ways. You can't stay in the middle forever. Well, it is our prayer here at Graceful Truth that God would reveal His grace to your hearts through the teaching of His Word each week. We trust you're currently involved in a Bible teaching church in your area. If not, we'd love to have you come and visit us here at Grace Bible Church in Redwood City. We meet each Sunday morning for our praise and worship service at 10 a.m. We offer nursery care and Sunday school classes for our children up to grade five. If you'd like to encourage us here at Graceful Truth, please give us a call at Grace Bible Church here in Redwood City. This is our phone number, 650-366-9923. Again, that's 650-366-9923. Or you can visit us on the web at gracefultruth.org. We've got a lot of resource materials available there, more information about who we are. And if you need a map to visit us at Grace Bible Church, that's there as well. Again, gracefultruth.org. And would you please drop us an email? Let us know you paid us a visit when you stop by. Again, gracefultruth.org. Or give us a call at 650-366-9923. Again, that's 650-366-9923. We thank you for joining us today and trust we'll see you again next week at this same time for another broadcast of Graceful Truth. Graceful Truth.